There are a lot of other good conversations to have, a lot of other important conversations to have. But if your apologetics, if your discussion, defense of Christian faith doesn't begin, isn't informed by, doesn't emphasize most strongly the resurrection, then friends, and I say this with all love, so don't be offended, you're doing it wrong. Welcome to The Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but lighthearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Garrick, and I'm not afraid to admit that in a pinch, I'll microwave a cup of coffee. And I'm Timothy, and I can almost guarantee that even the coffee that Garrick microwaves is probably better than what I have. Because <laughs> Garrick, just so you all know, he's actually good at doing the coffee thing. I'm starting on pour over, trying to work on getting that straight, getting that right, everything like that, but not quite there yet. So You still frequent a certain mega chain coffee store that I won't go to. So that can already tell people our difference in the coffee life here. But the great thing is that we've always known that about each other and we've never judged each other for that. There's not even been any arguments about it. The only things we like to argue about are really nerdy things like church history and artifacts from church history. And that's what we're going to do now. Right now, we are going to do the segment that you've come to know as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. That's right. In this segment, we dig up, (laughs) pun intended, artifacts from church history, weird ones, and we put them in battle. However, that works against each other and, and decide who the victor is, who brings the better artifact to the table, so to speak. So because I introduced the segment, Timothy gets to go first this week. Timothy, what you got for us? Well, what I have today is a book that I'm going to hit whatever you bring up. I'm going to smack it with this book. (laughs) And what I have are the Lindisfarne Gospels. The Lindisfarne Gospels, which is an 8th century Latin text that then had a gloss put on it in English. Now, a gloss is not like something you wipe on to make it shiny. A gloss is writing in a different language right above the other one. So it has an English gloss that was put on it in the 10th century, and it's beautifully decorated. One of the most beautiful manuscripts ever, and a very colorful, and it had a jeweled cover on it that was this magnificent massive, heavy, jeweled cover, which did go missing in the Viking raids on Lindisfarne. It was very, very 
something the Vikings apparently liked was all this jeweled cover. But a replacement was made, which I've seen in the British Library. This replacement was made in 1852, this massive metal jeweled cover on this, with which I shall smack whatever it is that you bring before us today. (laughs) Well, my artifact is both a what and a place. So we'll see how this works out. I'm not sure the book is going to do much damage. The artifact is, and I, I just apologize in advance for this. This is all I got today. The artifact is Mary's breast milk. Now, listen, stop, stop before... Before you get crazy, just let me keep going before you turn this whole podcast off, okay? Mary's Breast Milk, which is situated in the Chapel of the Milk Grotto of Our Lady of Bethlehem, which is visited (laughs) frequently as one of the major Christian pilgrimage sites, which I haven't personally been to. Don't know if you have, Timothy. And if you have, I don't know if that's one you take the family with you to, or I'm, I'm just not sure about this. This grotto, this mini cave, right? It was believed that the Virgin Mary found refuge in this grotto with the infant Jesus and was nursing him. And while she was nursing him, a drop of her milk fell onto the cave floor and turned the whole grotto white, which it is white and has remained so to this day. And so, of course, it's a, if that were the case, that's a a miracle and this would be some type of very special sacred place. And if all of that is the case, then I think hitting it with metal bound four gospels is, I mean, listen, you might make a scratch somewhere on a wall or something, but the Virgin Mary will not be so easily disposed. Well, I will say first off that the gospel always wins. I mean, that's what that- <laughs> Fair, fair point. (laughs) I mean, we are gospel-centered, and so the gospel always has to win. But also, this kind of ought to work like rock, paper, scissors, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) So to be serious for a second, if we're talking about we are making this podcast as Protestant evangelicals, which does not mean that we throw out the possibility of the supernatural. I mean, certainly not, and sacred spaces and all that. But if we're talking about things that have had an impact on the faith throughout the ages. It's great to be able to go visit a place, but this place compared to the four gospels and this beautiful rendition of them, we would have to say that the Lindisfarne gospels does win out because this is the written proclamation of God's word that had an impact that turned the world upside down. So what we're going to talk about in this particular episode is what is apologetics and where do I even start? That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, excuse me. Pardon me. Timothy, this is we're in season three now. And when we first started this podcast several years ago or a few years ago, I don't even remember now. Time doesn't even make sense to me these days. Didn't we already talk about what apologetics is? Wasn't this like episode one, season one? It was something like that. Episodes one and two, I think. And so we encourage you to go back and listen to those. But the truth is, we don't remember what we said back then. Mm -mm. And beyond that, I think one of the things I've realized, and this might really be interesting for you to go back and listen to that, because I haven't gone back and listened to it. I've realized that 
our view of apologetics has grown over the past couple of years. We started in 2019, January of 2019, doing this. And over the past two or three years, we've grown in the way we think about apologetics. And so it's a good time to take a look at this particular question of what is apologetics and where do I start? And this idea came from, I wrote for the newsletter on the apologeticsnewsletter.com. I wrote a little piece that had five things you need to know about apologetics. Just five places to start really quick about apologetics. And a ton of people really liked that, really seemed to enjoy that, tweeted it out to their friends, things like that. So I thought, okay, this might be a good thing for us to talk about is what is apologetics? Where do I even start? And to think about this to help people find out where do they begin with this? Because we sometimes assume everybody already knows what it is and they're ready to dig into the deepest stuff. And that's awesome if that's who you are. But if you're just saying, I have just now recently heard of this, then that's okay too. And we want to help you if that's where you're at. But in this episode, we took these five points, expanded it to seven. Maybe you could consider it five points and some sub points. Who knows? He's just uh, Timothy's a preacher. That's what he does. He just expands things. And so the first point, kind of answering the question, what does apologetics even mean? And so point number one of what apologetics is, is apologetics is not an apology. It's a defense that includes some evidence. Yeah. Apologetics is not an apology. And so that's one of the first misconceptions that people have is that somehow now etymologically, these two do trace back together. Okay. All the way back when, but it's actually fairly recent phenomenon over the past couple of centuries that apology has meant saying, I'm sorry. Before that, it meant a defense. And there may be some of you, husbands (laughs) in particular, that you could use a class in apologies. You really could. And there are probably podcasts that can help you with that. We are not that podcast. Those kind of apologies should not include a defense, right? Like when we're talking about, yeah, that's Yeah. yeah, different. Completely different ballgame here. You just own it at that point. You just own it and say you're sorry and do whatever it takes to make it right. This idea, though, of apologetics being about an apology or an apologist being about saying I'm sorry, we're not alone in this. If you're thinking that, if you've thought that, then you're not alone in that. The band R.E.M., if you remember on their Up album, they had this song called, it was actually a pretty cool song called The Apologist. And some of the lyrics of this song, The Apologist, were. They call me the apologist, but now I'm facing up. I wanted to apologize for everything I was, so I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. The word goes back further than Aristotle. Our meanings of it really are grounded, though, in some categories that Aristotle came up with. So basically, he identified in a court of law the prosecuting attorney's speech, to use our terminology, and the defense attorney's speech. And so basically, he called the prosecuting attorney's speech the categoria, and then he called the defense attorney's speech the apologia. So that's basically what it is. It's the defense attorney's speech in a court of law. So kind of what it assumes when we use the word apologia, what it assumes is that there is some sort of an accusation or some sort of a misunderstanding or misconstrual that we have to answer. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to clear away misconceptions, misconstruals, wrong understandings, false accusations that are raised against 
the Christian faith. That's what we're talking about when we talk about apologetics in the proper sense of that word, apologia. Timothy, can I ask this question? We, we make the point that apologetics is not an apology. It's a defense that includes evidence. And you and I have talked a bunch about what Christian apologetics looked like in its earliest form and how it's not what we tend to think about today. And a lot of it had to do with the witness of one's lifestyle and a lot of that, right? So how can we make sense? Here's the statement. It's a defense that includes evidence. How does that principle apply both to kind of the early apologetics that we've discussed so much, but equally to kind of what we tend to think of as apologetics today? Yeah, I think that one of the things we have to remember, and we'll talk about this throughout this time together, is that our life is part of the evidence. The evidence is not just some sort of a foundationalist argument beginning with some commonly agreed upon fact and then building on. That's not a bad thing to do. There's a time and a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But it is something that is also embedded in our lives. In some sense, we might say that apologetics is never less than the life you live. It's always more than that, but it's never less than that. It's always more than the life you live. It's not just something where you live a good life, be nice in the name of Christ, and that's your apologetic. That's not it. There's a verbal articulation. But it's also the life you live. And it's not one against the other. It's those two working in tandem with one another. And so that's what's important for us to recognize in that. Yeah. Before you, because I know you're going to give like a definition of apologetics, which I think is really helpful. The Apostle Peter used this term for defense when he wrote these words to Christians in Asia Minor, when he says, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's First Peter 3.15. And so the idea is ancient prior to the advent of Christianity, but it's also not foreign to biblical Christians, right? To the earliest church, even in the times of Jesus. Exactly. It's really, it's not foreign at all, particularly in the time after persecution begins in the church. This is something that even in biblical times, they are engaging in apologetics. It is primarily for them when you're brought before a magistrate, brought before a governor, and you're accused to be able to answer that accusation, to be ready so that you don't have to be thinking about, you already know what your defense is of the truth of Christianity and also of the life that Christianity live. As I said, the life and the truth were together. They're not two separate things. You're defending the life, that this is a life that is beautiful and good and true and filled with truth and beauty and goodness, but also that it actually, this truth has a foundation in real events that happened in history. Those are both working together, even in the first century. And so as we kind of think about this, here's how I've defined apologetics for a few years. I don't pretend that this is the final or the only only definition of apologetics. It's just the one I've used and found helpful for a few years. And it's simply this. Apologetics is the reverent, reasonable, and humble defense through our words and through our lives of the hope we have in the risen Christ as this hope has been revealed in his word and in his world. So that's the definition that I give. So reverent, reasonable, and humble, that is to say we're doing this in the fear of God. We're doing this, it's rational. There's something we're stating that's rational. It's humble. 
We're not arrogant. We'll talk about that a little bit later about the contradiction of arrogance and apologetics. And it's in our words and in our lives. It's centered in the risen Christ. And it's this hope revealed in his word and in his world. There are two books that God has given. There is the book of scripture, which is supreme and authoritative in every way. But he's also given the book of nature, and that book matters as well. Both of these tell us about God and are sources of our evidence and our truth that we know about God. Timothy, you professionally speaking, because I was fortunate to be around for this and got to have so many discussions as this was going on, but you were making the turn from focusing kind of your area of research and expertise and whatnot in family ministry to apologetics. I mean, really starting to make that intentional turn around 2018 is like really when it started to kind of become serious and a thing. And I'm wondering how long between that turn and kind of landing at this definition that you use now. Yeah, it was a couple of years. I mean, it took me a couple of years to develop this type of an idea. The things that really changed over that time period is I have a much deeper appreciation for and recognition of the need for the church in apologetics. That's been a huge turn for me. And then how exactly we relate the life lived and the evidence offered, thinking of ways to do that. And as you know, and you remember this, at first, for a while, I really wanted to be a presuppositionalist. And for those of you who don't know what that is, we've got other episodes about that when we get into that. But I also spent a ton of time reading, trying to become that. And I realized that just the view I have of apologetics is just fundamentally different from that. And I think there's a good place and there's a time and a place for a presuppositional apologetic. But I really came to this different angle on apologetics that's very much grounded in the life of the church as the evidence of the faith. And that really has become probably what I intend to spend the next decade or so really working out and working on is that type of an idea. So a lot of this comes from that wrestling with trying to take one turn and realizing I couldn't really take that turn. I just couldn't embrace that. And as you know, my love and where I love to live is in the second and third century. And so the way the second, third century, and then Augustine as well, so kind of from the second century to the fourth and fifth century with Augustine at that time, that just shapes me so much. There are certain things that I realized were grounded in the philosophies of the modern era and the 19th and 20th century that I realized I love the second and third century. And as I studied that more, I'm just more and more convinced that the second and third and fourth centuries are the most relevant ones for apologetics today. And that's the big thing is I think it's really relevant because I think we are moving into a world that is far more analogous. It's not the same. And I'm not trying to say we just drop something from the past <laughs> into the present. It's not. But it's far more analogous to the second, third, fourth century than it is to the 19th century, for example. What's been fun for me to watch is though you – had this desire, because really for Reformed theologians, it's the cool thing to be is presuppositional in your apologetics. But you could never shake this strong evidentialist strain in you, though. That was never something you could let go of. You were always wanting to redeem the classic apologetics as well. And so what's fun for me to have seen is that hasn't gone away, but that so much of what you think of when you think of evidence has become more about 
witness. And of course, that huge part of the early church apologists and and now thinking of it ecclesiologically, the role that the church plays in Christian apologetics as witness, as evidence for our defense of the faith. And that's just been kind of a fun journey for me to, to watch and get to be a part of with you. So point number two, so that we can keep going, holiness provides the foundation for the proclamation of our hope. Holiness provides the foundation for the proclamation of our hope. Sticking with Peter, the theme, right? What do we do? So we're going through First Peter. We just started a First Peter sermon series here at the village, and we have things planned all the way into the fall having to do with it. And so this is the question that we're talking about with our people. What do we do when the culture has turned against us, right? If the theme of First Peter is hope in the midst of persecution. And if you're paying attention to the world, if you don't already call our country post-Christian, that's fine. That's certainly the direction that we're headed. And it's going to become increasingly uncomfortable to hold a position of orthodox Christianity as time goes on. And First Peter is key to understanding a way of being in the world, in that world, in the midst of persecution. I think First Peter is probably the most relevant book for right now at the time in history we're at, because First Peter, what's happening is this is either right before or right after a fire in Rome that the Christians are blamed for the fire and persecution. It's a localized persecution, but it's a localized persecution in Rome. So that has repercussions and effects throughout the entire rest of the Roman Empire. Even if it stayed within Rome, the attitude toward Christians changes throughout the entirety of the Roman Empire. And Christians are raised to a new level of profile because suddenly everybody knows about the Christians. And unfortunately, Billy Joel isn't born by that time. So he can't make his apologia through one of the greatest songs of all time, We Didn't Start the Fire. But Yes, because that was, I mean, that's basically about 64 AD, We Didn't Start the Fire. Yeah, it starts in 64, add a few years, and Billy Joel covers it. the Christians didn't start the fire, nor, by the way, did Nero. It started by accident. People blame Nero. Nero blamed the Christians. And so everybody's saying, we didn't start the fire. It's all like Genesis 3. Going back to something you said earlier, though, the defense of the Christian faith, our defense of the Christian faith, certainly starts with holiness, right? Must start with holiness. It's no less than holiness, kind of like what you said, no less than our lives. But it doesn't end there right? There's nothing that we can say that will have impact in people's perception of the faith if they can't see holiness in us or in the church, but we can't leave it there, right? Right. We can't leave it there. We can't stop there. But as you said, we have to start there. And that's where Peter, that's what he does. In his first chapter, one of the first things he covers is be holy because I am holy. This is God saying, be holy, be separated, but also in a more proper sense, be devoted sacrificially. That's really holiness has to do with sacrificial devotion and the separateness or the moral life that we call holy is a result of that sacrificial devotion, but not the essence of what holiness is. Holiness at its core is sacrificial devotion 
absolute devotion that will result in a moral life, that will result in some of these things. And Peter's first thing to tell the Christians is not, hey, just go ahead and make your defense right off the bat. No, he's not saying that. First thing he says, before he says that, he does say to make a defense, but the first thing he says is, hey, live a life that's holy. That's what comes first. And then you make your defense on the basis of a life that is holy. Yeah. It's not Peter's position, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words, right? Like like he kind of blows that up before it ever exists. His, he does. And very by much. the way, it wasn't St. Francis of Assisi's position either. Uh, who that <laughs> yes. that yes. saying is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I know. And, and even if St. Francis said it, he'd be wrong. But preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. It's like eat at all times, if necessary, use food. It's like that's it right. doesn't make any sense that's to say right. that. And so, folks, if, if that's on your wall, if that's your nice little saying on your wall, just we won't tell anyone just take it away and especially if you attribute it to saint francis saint francis didn't say it and it's not true preach the gospel at all times requires words it does require a life but it also requires words yeah just starts with the life but you got to move towards so holiness provides the foundation of the proclamation of our hope that hope point number three christian hope is centered in the resurrection christian hope is centered in the resurrection and therefore, so is our defense. So is our apologetics. This is big. Timothy and I have talked about this a lot. And I'm not going to get on a soapbox here. But prior to coming to this conviction or understanding, something that I wasn't wrapped up in, but certainly what I saw around me when people talked about apologetics, wanted to discuss apologetics, would always center on other things. And there are a a lot of other good conversations to have, a lot of other important conversations to have. But if your apologetics, if your discussion defense of Christian faith doesn't begin, isn't informed by, doesn't emphasize most strongly the resurrection, then friends, and I say this with all love, so don't be offended, you're doing it wrong. For me, that's really important because I grew up with anything I heard at apologetics was about things like young earth creationism, defending that, or the King James Version of the Bible, defending that. And I entered into college utterly unequipped to be able to deal with any challenge to my faith of any kind. And the thing that God used to challenge what was in me a rising skepticism at this point was that I could not get around the resurrection. I just could not get around that this actually makes the most sense of the historical evidence. That was really the big thing. I I kept trying to get around it in every other way. And all the reasons kept getting shot down. And one of the main things, the main texts for me that they got shot down in, oddly enough, was C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy. It wasn't the one that most people go to is mere Christianity. That one didn't do it. It was Surprised by Joy because I was trying to explain it away through the myths of the pagan gods, this dying, rising myth, all those things like that. That's how I was trying to explain it away. And he totally destroyed that, not by saying there aren't any parallels, but by saying that the parallels or it's precisely what we ought to expect to see if this is true and demonstrating that. And so it destroyed 
what I was trying to do to undermine the resurrection in Surprised by Joy. And ever since that moment, it's just been that I've realized the centrality of that. And you see it in First Peter. Every time that Peter talks about hope, he connects it somehow with resurrection, either the resurrection of Jesus in the past for him or the resurrection in the future for all of us at the end of time. He always connects hope with resurrection. And because of that, everything we do ought to point to the cross and the empty tomb. There are so many great discussions to have that we have on this program. It's good to discuss the problem of evil, but if you convince somebody that the problem of evil isn't really a problem by showing them that a good God could actually have good reasons to allow evil in the world, but you never get to the cross and the empty tomb. You just, you've wasted your time. And I don't care what view of creation you have. I really have never tried to convince anyone of a particular view of creation. I don't care. I do care if somebody elevates it to the point of being a gospel issue, which it isn't. How old the earth is, is not a gospel issue. And if you spend all your time trying to to convince people of some particular view of creation. And that's what you get them really convinced of that. But the emphasis was on a particular model of creation and not on the cross and the empty tomb. Again, you've wasted your time. And that's what I want us to see. The center has to be the resurrection because without the resurrection, there's no gospel. And what I mean when I'm talking about the gospel is the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the resurrection of Jesus by which God is reconciling sinners to himself and revealing his reign in the world. That's the gospel. And the resurrection is central in that. Any apologetic that defines truth, defends the truth, but never delivers a call to believe the gospel because it's loss of focus on the gospel— it's empty apologetics. It may not make you heterodox, but you're not properly defending the faith. You're defending a point of theology that you're passionate about. Yeah, because the gospel alone is Paul in Romans 1.16. The gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. That is the power. The power is not in your argument for anything in apologetics. The power is in the gospel. So if you try to do apologetics and don't get to the gospel where the resurrection of Jesus is central, then you're wasting your time. Ultimately, you're ultimately wasting your time. These are good discussions, but they are not apologetics and they are not where the power is. The power is in the gospel, Romans 1.16. That's where the power is. And the evidence for this gospel is super strong. It really is. And as I said, I say this because I was struggling. I felt like I was on a trajectory from Christianity, from a fundamentalist Christianity to atheism. And what arrested that trajectory and turned it into something else was evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that I could not get around. I couldn't. And I think we see in Scripture and outside of Scripture that so many things testify together to the truth of this claim. The resurrection of Jesus, let's just think about it, what we have in the Scriptures. It's not only in the four Gospels, but also in an early oral history that's recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So we've got multiple accounts. Like if you're thinking about if something's true, often one of the things you ask is, are there multiple accounts, but are there multiple independent 
accounts. That is to say, they say the same things in slightly different ways. And if we even look at that, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke say the same thing in the same way. John and 1 Corinthians say the same thing in different ways. So you've got independent testimonies. By the way, there's also a papyrus called the Akmim papyrus that includes an account of the resurrection of Jesus as well on the third day. Now, there's some strange things mixed in there. I mean, there's, yeah, there's some things mixed in there, but hey, there's also an extra biblical account that doesn't belong in the Bible, but it actually provides another independent testimony because it's not dependent on the Gospels. It's this other independent account of the resurrection of Jesus called the Akmim papyrus. If there were ever a drinking game that were created around our podcast, I think it would be around the word papyrus. How many times does Timothy say papyrus? It's like you get paid. So there's some secret sponsor behind the scenes that every time you get like a bonus, every time you say papyrus. It's Maybe funny. it's the papyrus font. Maybe that's <laughs> I don't think they could afford any, so anymore to really be sponsoring folks. But, you know, man, I was huge on that font back in the day. I made a whole website for a karate dojo using papyrus font. Not even ashamed. Not even ashamed. That dojo could just come find you. I know. I know. I'm sure they changed it by now. Karate chopped you. That's right. I think they gave me free karate because of it. So that was cool. (laughs) I don't even know where we are now. (laughs) Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Wax on, wax off, wax on. In the modern era, the real turn that has happened, I think, in the resurrection, there's a couple of them. One of them is the assumption is that the burden of proof is on you have to show it that the miraculous happened. The assumption is the miraculous doesn't happen. And that's just a basic assumption in the modern era that people in the pre-modern and even actually the earliest part of the modern era wouldn't have held that assumption that the miraculous is always be believed against. So that's one of the key things that we begin to see. And that affects our apologetics. So if somebody is assuming that anything miraculous is probably fictitious, then we have to build our arguments somewhat differently at that point. And that's not bad. We need to contextualize this. We'll talk about later to not the place we're at. Not necessarily bad. Right. It's not necessarily, there are bad ways to do it. Yes. But it's not in and of itself always bad to try to build up an, an argument in that. But if that's all we do, and if we kind of buy into the modern way of thinking that biases us against the supernatural, I think we miss out on a lot of richness in the Christian tradition. And uh, it's so much part of the air we breathe that we don't even notice that we are automatically biased against the supernatural. We really are. The, the world we live in is just that world. And there's times we need to to respond to that. There's times we need to build a case. There's some really well done apologetics that way. Mike Lacona's book, there's things I disagree with that book in, but yet it's a good, very modern defense of the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection of Jesus by Mike Lacona. To some degree, though to a lesser extent, N.T. Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God, he does it really well because he calls out the contradictions in the modern way of thinking. And that's a really well done book that calls out the contradictions in that. But this whole thing of engaging the bias against the supernatural, it needs to be done. But it also, as I said, it cuts us off from some other evidences for the resurrection that we might have. And hasn't it often led to beginning with folks who were well-intentioned 
feeling the need, again, and making a defense to meet the modern unbeliever on their terms. And so some folks, rather than trying to build the case for the resurrection, try to make defenses of the faith that not explicitly, but functionally affirm this denial of the miraculous and the supernatural, again, often without even noticing that they're doing it. So it's trying to do apologetics. I'm going to try to get common ground here. And so I'm going to have to make a very rational, naturalistic argument to kind of convince this person who won't believe in something supernatural like the resurrection. And that snowballs and has bad consequences down the line, usually. Yeah, I think one of the things that you guys see people doing is they basically give up so much ground to their opponent, so to speak. And I, I don't like to think of it as opponent. I think of a as sort of your debate their discussion partner. partner. Right. They're, the, they're, the person yeah. you're discussing this with, but you give up so much ground that you end up undercutting your own case at that point by giving up so much to a secular or a naturalistic worldview that you end up undercutting your case. But there are some things that are in that that actually help us. I think that in the modern era, we emphasize the fact of, like I've already hinted at the fact that we have multiple independent testimonies. That's something that we're forced to think in terms of. I think we think in terms of a lot of the psychological side of it, in terms of people would be unlikely to fabricate this for a whole variety of reasons. There are some good things that come from this, but we also, I think, miss some things. And I think Augustine has some really interesting arguments that aren't the type that we would use today, but I think they're really interesting and strong arguments that we ought to talk about as well. Augustine, for example, he said, this is in one of his sermons, he talks about how the seasons they point to the resurrection. We think, okay, I get that. Uh, you know, the, and we think of it in terms yeah. of that, okay, there's winter and then there's spring, and this is a nice analogy or a nice symbol of the resurrection. That's not what Augustine was saying. What Augustine was saying is that when God created the world to have seasons to begin with, he created it because he was going to raise Jesus from the dead and because he was going to raise us. So God created the seasons. He could have created a world without seasons. He could have created a world with different types of seasons, but God created a particular sequence of seasons precisely because he already had planned the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all humanity. That's a beautiful argument that's made at that point that is from the seasons themselves. This would be much more typical of the church fathers and the early church, this way of arguing and thinking. And it's that argument that Timothy likes to hold on to to keep him from hating winter even more than he already hates it. At least with this argument, he can point to the beauty and the design, even if he laments the reality of the season. So Augustine makes this argument for the resurrection on the basis of the seasons. We wouldn't normally do that, make an argument for the resurrection on the basis of the seasons, but Augustine does, and it's brilliant. But then he also, in other places, he makes arguments that are a little bit more similar to what we would make today. He talks about the impact on the disciples' lives. There's a place in City of God when he says, a few obscure men with no standing and no education were effective in persuading the world, for they gave their lives testifying that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's still, even in a modern era, 
an argument that's still good to make today, because at the very least, Simon Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of Jesus, all three of those, at the very least, died for what they declared about Jesus. And the fact is, and this has been said over and over, but there's sometimes you say something over and over because it's really true. People might die for a lie. People have died for lies. Millions of people have died for lies. But rarely will anybody die for what they know is a lie. And Peter and those two Jameses, they would have known if it was a lie. And yet they gave their lives for Jesus, claiming that he had been raised from the dead. So you see, Augustine makes this argument from the seasons. He makes this argument from the actions of the disciples. But he also makes this really interesting argument from human longings. And he says, without immortality, he says this in his book on the Trinity, without immortality, it is altogether impossible for any life to be genuinely happy. And what he's saying in that is that we have a deep-seated desire within us, and it's difficult to determine where such a desire would come from for a new life, for resurrection, for being raised from the dead. Where would that come from if it weren't that somebody has put it there? And that not only has God put it there, but it is something that is universal in every human being, this yearning, this longing for new life. And that just as your other desires have satisfaction, that if we have this deep and universal desire, maybe there's a satisfaction for it that God himself has designed, this longing, this yearning. And the truth is, in art, in literature, in so many places, we see this longing for new life. We see it in popular music. I think of the Pink Floyd song, Coming Back to Life, which is just the song from the Division Bell album that is just full of yearning. And the song goes, I took a heavenly ride through our silence. I knew the moment had arrived for killing the past and coming back to life. killing the past and coming back to life. He just wants there to be such a thing as new life. David Gilmore does. Even though he's an atheist, he's yearning for new life. I think of Brian May, who, by the way, is not an atheist. He is a not a theist either, but he's an agnostic saying he doesn't know for sure. But he has a song called Resurrection, Brian May of Queen, when he says, I'm a victim of a victim of a conspiracy from a corpum derelictum, a body left behind, going to fly and be free. The resurrection is going to come, clear the vision, heal the system, sins forgiven, rise. He has a longing for the resurrection. Our hope is not in the particular view of creation. Our hope is not in a particular method of apologetics. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. <laughs>